0: Good morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and as you do, we are continuing our series called Tales of the Kingdom as we are looking at various parables that Jesus taught and digging into them to see the kingdom truths about salvation, and we've seen His grace, His judgments, His justification, and today. Um, we continue on in that series. And so, as you go there, let's bow our heads and pray one more time and ask God's blessings upon His Word. Father, we thank You for Your holy and inspired Word. Uh, I bring nothing to this pulpit uh, that can do any, has any power. Uh, only Your Word and Your Spirit have power. I pray that You would fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit, that You would anoint Your Word, and that it would go forth and demonstrate the power of the grace that is found in the Gospel, and if there's someone here that has never been saved and understood the forgiveness of sin, that today they'll, they'll walk away with full assurance of salvation. And for every believer here today, that we will be marked as uh, your people uh, with our identity in Jesus and uh, our uh, identity and what he has achieved for us and the forgiveness that has come uh, to us through him. I pray, Lord, that uh, you be with those that are not able to gather here today, those that are in the hospital, um, those that are going through various trials and afflictions um, and challenges. We pray, God, that you would comfort and strengthen them uh, through our prayers and through your spirit and through your word. And uh, God, we love you and thank you for your faithfulness to us. And God, just draw us near through your truth today, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, the title of the message is called, "'A Sinner Forgiven.'" A sinner forgiven. And so stand with me as we read Luke 7, and we're going to begin reading in verse 36. The Scripture says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, as we read a passage like that, we can't help but go back to last week for just a minute. And uh, let me begin by just asking the question, do you remember the parable from last week of the Pharisee and the tax collector? And remember at the very end that Jesus said that the man went home justified, that he went home justified. And so I just want you to think for just a moment, just imagine with me, the journey home for that tax collector on that day. Without doubt, he had come to the temple burdened with his sin. He was declared justified, and as he journeyed home, there is no doubt that he was filled with joy. He had entered the temple. He had encountered the living God, and what did he experience? Ultimately, he experienced mercy and grace. Now I want to be clear here. His justification was certainly a realized truth, not simply an emotional feeling. But what I want to emphasize today that is that salvation is an experience of divine truth that is rooted in it is rooted in an encounter with Jesus Christ. As he is revealed in the gospel. And so we must see that salvation, it's not just, an, it's not just intellectual knowledge. And, and I, I think sometimes that we can just kind of land there because we want to know the truth. And obviously, we need, must know the truth. But, but the reality is, is that salvation is not just head, it's heart, it's whole being. And the Puritans emphasize this a lot, this word not not emotion, but experience, experiential. And in that sense today, what what I want us to think about are the people like the tax collector, of course, that was the parable, but like people like who we're going to encounter this morning, who they encountered Jesus Christ, and they had an experience with him that transformed them. And that experience, hear me, is an experience with the truth. The truth. In other words, the truth then impacts our whole being. That's what you see. I mean, you think of of the leper who was healed by Jesus and the overwhelming reality that Jesus actually touched him. And he had never been touched a day in his life we think of Matthew, the tax collector, who Jesus went up to and called him to follow him. And he gave up everything. But again, these these were encounters with Christ where divine truth was experienced. We think, of course, the thief on the cross, who on the cross was, it said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you see? Well, what I hope you're seeing here is, is that there is absolute divine truth, but there is an experience that we come when we, that happens when we encounter that. And so while the tax collector experienced grace, today we consider a very short parable of someone who experienced forgiveness, and this parable is actually rooted in a real what, what actually drives the parable is an actual an actual episode in Jesus' life and ministry. It is different in that the parable serves the encounter that the person had with Jesus. That is, the Pharisee and this woman. And so we might call the scene an unexpected party. Just kidding, that's not true. For those of you who like Lord of the Rings. It's actually, we might say, a dinner with a Pharisee, because that's what happens here. A dinner with a Pharisee. Now, what's interesting is, is if you go back to Luke 5, Jesus had dinner with a sinner. And I don't mean that just a rhyme, it just happens to rhyme. And so if you go back to Luke chapter 5, you'll read how Jesus went into the house of Levi, the tax collector, and he had dinner with him. But here, what is interesting, and in that, case, in, in that case, it was the Pharisees that intruded on the dinner. In this account, here in Luke chapter 7, we see that he's having dinner with a Pharisee, and it's a sinner that intrudes on this party. Jesus had been invited to attend this dinner at the home of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. Pharisees, as we said last week, exerted great hostility toward Jesus, And so it was unique that this Pharisee had invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Certainly he had other motives. He probably wanted to question him, corner him, so on and so forth. But while at this dinner, an unnamed woman approaches Jesus out of the shadows with an alabaster box, which would be expensive perfume, to anoint him or to present to him. This is not to be confused with a similar incident that occurs in the other three Gospels. On the other occasions, it was actually Mary of Bethany who anointed Jesus, and this occurred toward the end of his ministry. Here, in Luke chapter 7, Luke includes this episode totally different in order to demonstrate Christ's amazing love toward the sinful, the immoral, and the rejected. And so that, that is why Luke includes this here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is indeed a friend of sinners, as is alluded to in verse 34, where at, an, at another dinner with John the Baptist and his followers, that were with J- John the Baptist's followers, the, he, Jesus indicates that he has been accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so here you have Luke 7, verse 36, presenting an occasion where Jesus encounters a sinner at dinner. And so Jesus indeed is this friend, and so the key kingdom truth that I want you to see is this. Sinners who are forgiven completely through Jesus will love him greatly. That's what you see here. That sinners who are forgiven completely through Jesus will love him greatly greatly. No doubt this is a theme in the Gospel of Luke, because as I said, you see this in Luke 5. And so I want us to see this truth in three three headings. First, we want to consider the uninvited guest. And then we want to consider the second thing, the unfolded story. And then we'll look at the unfathomable grace that is in this text. So sinners who are forgiven— completely by Jesus, will love him greatly. First, let's look at the uninvited guest. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, underline that word, behold, or consider. In other words, something happens that is unexpected. A woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet in her tears and with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And so the first thing you see as we get into this this party, this dinner, is we encounter a dinner crasher. That's what this woman was. She crashes the party in some sense. Now, formal dinners like this, they took place outside in the courtyard, or in our equivalent, it would be like you have a patio or you have a pavilion or something at your home, and you have dinner or you have guests that will gather outside. Well, in the ancient world, it was very common for dinners to take place outside of people's homes, in this case, Simon's home. And then other people, and so it wasn't a closed dinner. In other words, other people could come from the outside, from out on the street. So it wasn't inside the house. And so others who were uninvited to the meal, they could gather and they could just watch what was taking place. They would watch from the outside space. Usually they would stand against the wall to simply observe. And so we know that this is a formal dinner and that the people gathered there are honored guests, because Jesus is reclining. Do you see that? The text says that he gathered at the, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. What that means is he customarily reclined at the table, leaning his left arm on a, on a pillow of sort with his head toward the table, and his feet would have been extended outward towards the outside, and he would use his right hand to eat with and then to gesture as they talked, and then crash. This woman approaches. And so I want you to notice who she was, and then I want you to look at what she did. We are told, according to the text, to consider the fact, or to behold the fact, that the woman, she is a woman of the city. Notice the, the, the description of her identity. A woman of the city who is a sinner. In some sense, this code for she was a prostitute. Or she had been a prostitute. She had been a prostitute who, was a, who had lived a sinful life. She is a social outcast. Remember what we said about tax collectors? That they were included with the most debased of society? This woman is in that category. She is morally debased. She is religiously unclean. And in light of that, as religiously unclean and morally debased, while she would not have been forbidden to be there, she was certainly not invited or welcomed at the table. She was to be in the shadows, against the wall, in the dark. And so imagine the gossip, the threats, the risks that she would have faced in coming there, let alone to step forward and approach Jesus and the religious leaders that were eating with him. It took remarkable courage remarkable courage, and having heard him teach, you say, well, okay, well, why? Why, why did she do this? Well, we're never, we're never told. But what we, could, what we really could assume, based upon reading Luke's gospel up to this point, is at some point, she had heard Jesus teach And she had heard the message of salvation and God's sovereign grace drew her to Jesus at some point and she had been changed. There's no doubt about that. She did not deserve to be there and the only reason she desired to be there was because of his grace. It is his grace that drew her there. And she was willing to face the glare of the self-righteous to experience the grace of the Savior. We're talking about a Pharisee, the most judgmental of the judgmental, the most condemning of the condemning. I mean, you would run from a Pharisee, right? I mean, you see that in the tax collector that we looked at last week. He, he, he stood alone and above everyone, and the tax collector, he stood apart. And so this woman, to walk into this situation, and to be willing to experience the criticism of the Pharisees, it tells you something about Jesus, doesn't it? Doesn't it give you a little bit of insight into the kind of person he was, I mean, he was divinely approachable. And he was divinely receiving. And she knew that. And given who she was, she was willing to approach. And that's why I want you to see what she did. Notice what she did. Now, her original intent was to come and to present Jesus this costly perfume, this alabaster flask. Very, very expensive. And she wanted to present this to him as a token of her gratitude. Again, she had experienced forgiveness. She had, for, she had experienced the message of his salvation. And so she had come here just to express gratitude. But her original intent is kind of overshadowed by her overwhelming emotion. I mean, there she sit, stands in the dark and she sees this. She, and the text is very clear. When she saw, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she comes, she enters, and she approaches. And so as she approaches, we see what she does. Look at the verbs, and you you should underline them. Look, 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 she learned, she brought, and then she wept. She wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed his feet. She anointed them with ointment. You see what's happened. As she sees Jesus, as she hears the conversation, she is overwhelmed with emotion. And I'm not just saying shallow emotion. She's actually overwhelmed by true, sincere love and devotion towards Jesus. So we could summarize what happens in three ways. She wept before him with remorse. Isn't that what the text says? She learned that he was reclining at the Pharisee's table in the Pharisee's house. She brings this alabaster flask of ointment with the intention of anointing, with the intention of gifting, and she's standing behind him. She's weeping, and she's weeping clearly uncontrollably because she wets his feet with her tears so much so that she takes her hair, undoes her hair, and she wipes his hair as if her hair was a towel and so she weeps before him with re, with remorse we might say with remorse and repentance but she she's remorseful because she's mourning her sin she mourns her sin perhaps she's mourning over wasted years over self-centered living She wept knowing that she had disregarded her God and she had disobeyed his commands. And so she wept, but she also washed his feet with repentance and remorse. She washed his feet. Now, the text indicates she was standing behind him, meaning as he's leaning against the table, she approaches, and so she then ends up at his feet. And so she had to kneel down at his feet, and that would have been the reason the text emphasizes at his feet is because she is displaying humility. One of the tasks of a host was to ensure that a guest, especially an honored guest, feet would be washed. And usually that was done by the servants of the house. And so the woman takes a posture of humility and she washes his feet as a servant would. And so when she comes to Jesus, she is not okay with her sin. Did you get that? She's not okay with her sin. She's not okay with her sinfulness. She is broken over it. She didn't come here for Jesus to affirm her sin. That's the problem with our culture. What our culture wants us to do is our culture wants us to tell everybody, look, we should just affirm what we are and what we do and say nothing is sin. That's not what happens here. This woman knows her sin. And she did not come here for others to accept her sin. She came here in absolution of her sin. In other words, she came here because she realized that Jesus came to this earth to do something about her sin. I'm not suggesting that she understood the nature of the cross. I mean, that's not even in the forefront at this point with people like her. But what she did know is, is that Jesus preached the message of grace and forgiveness found in the gospel. And that message had transformed her. And so she washes her feet with an attitude of repentance over her sin. That's the only response that we can have towards our sin. Be broken, be remorseful, be repentant. But I want you to notice she worshiped him with reverence. All these other actions. I mean, she's she's weeping at his feet in humility. And then as she sees her tears on his feet, she undoes her hair, which would have been shocking to the religious. I mean, it was, a, it was a symbol of disgrace for a woman to let down her hair, especially in the presence of honorable men. And so just paying attention to none of the, that stuff. She lets her hair down and she washes the feet of Jesus and and then she kisses his feet and so and here's what I want you to see when she kisses his feet that would be that that was a sign of honor that still happens to this day people will uh, some monarchs or some in some places thinking of the Pope I would never kiss the Pope's ring but nevertheless sorry Martin Luther coming out of me there but nevertheless it, it it is a sign a symbol of honor and reverence and in this case she sees her complete unworthiness and she she kisses the feet of christ the son of the living god and she anoints his feet with this expensive perfume she dumps it out and, and when this happens again later in Jesus' life, Judas will recoil at the waste of such an expensive perfume. But here she pours the perfume out because she demonstrates the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. The, now, hear me the very thing that she used to serve her sin, or perhaps the very thing that she had acquired because of her sin, she now uses. As a sacrifice to the Savior. Doesn't that show you the power of the gospel? It's just she takes this and she pours it out in service to Christ. And now she has gone from repenting over her sin. She's gone from focusing on her sin to what? Focusing on Jesus. And so, what I think you see here is, is that she came to Jesus as a repentant sinner that was, who was filled with love and devotion toward him. And I think what you see there is clearly how we are to approach him with true repentance over our sin and joy over who he is as the Savior. Are you repentant? Are you? Have you been broken over your sin? Have you ever been so broken over your sin that you wept? I'm not suggesting that crying is required, but I would say that we are to be broken over our sin. You see, one of the things I, I think we often neglect is the fact I don't think I, I would have a problem with anyone in here who would say, Well, I believe in Jesus. But the real question, especially if you've grown up in church, oh, you believe in Jesus? I mean, every kid in here probably would say, I believe in Jesus. But let me ask you, have you been broken over your sin? Have you ever been convicted over your sin? Have you ever seen the horror of your sin? Have you ever seen the wickedness of your sin? Have you ever stood before Jesus Christ and acknowledged that your sin is so terrible that it makes you worthy of nothing but hell? I mean, I I think that it is an absolute biblical requirement that we repent of our sin if we're to be saved. And then look to Jesus in joy for salvation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. James 4 verse 8 9, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And what he's driving at in James or in both of these passages is that in the heart of a Christian is a brokenness, a mourning, a remorse beyond remorse, a sorrow, and a repentance of sin. I, again, I, I think this is one of the key things that we need to talk to people about when we're going through the gospel. I, I, again, I had no problem with, with, I'm sure as we went to re, person to person in here today, everyone said, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but have you been convicted of your sin to see Jesus as the only Savior who can forgive you of your sin? And so this, this dinner crash, or creates a dinner crisis. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he's horrified. But notice the text says he said to himself, that is he thought to himself. He doesn't say this out loud, which says a lot about Jesus here in a minute. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. How many times we gotta repeat that? The text is repeating that because the Holy Spirit is demonstrating to us the power of the grace of the gospel. The dinner host is an internal crisis, and we're given insight into his thought. Jesus reads his mind, and here's what's going on. He has serious doubt about Jesus, and he has serious disapproval about Jesus. He has serious doubt, and he has self-righteous disapproval. This scene is scandalous to Simon. In other words, how can a known prophet allow a known prostitute to approach him and then touch him? I mean, a prostitute touching him. A prostitute. A prostitute. A woman, a woman of the city, a sinner is touching him and touching him in a way that is deeply personal. I'm not saying there are no innuendos there. This is completely appropriate on her part, but it was horrific to the religious leader. It is, It is. her her actions went against all religious principle, all ritualistic protocol. And so as a result, the Pharisee questions Jesus' legitimacy and disapproves of what he has allowed. She is immodest, she has acted improper, and Jesus has participated in a completely inappropriate scenario. You know, here's the thing. The dinner crisis reveals the whole problem with religion altogether. Are you seeing it? Religion says you must be worthy to enter. You must keep the rules. You must earn your place at the table, and then you can come and dine. Religion always sees that the problem is everybody else instead of the problem actually is me. The problem of sin is not just out there. It is in here. But the religious don't see that. That's why the religious think by external, by behavior modification, by external Uh, uh, external appearances that somehow the problem of sin can be dealt with. It can't. And that's why the religious hated Jesus. Saving grace is the enemy of religion. Just never forget that. Religion requires us to clean up and then come in. Grace meets us where we are. In our mess in our misery, in our mischief, and forgives us and changes us. Grace expects nothing, demands nothing, because grace provides everything in the gospel. And that's why the gospel will always be offensive to the religious. Because immediately the the reaction is, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If if we say that, then then that means people can live any way they want to. Well, I don't know. Did this woman live any way she wanted to? I don't think so. Grace changed her. Grace transformed her. And so I think that we can put our confidence in the power of the Spirit, in the work of grace that's found in the gospel. I love what Rosaria Butterfield says in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says Jesus dined with sinners but didn't sin with sinners. Jesus lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. This is the Jesus paradox. He can dine with sinners because he plans to transform sinners. And people are transformed by his grace. So the kingdom question then we're left with is this. What is your approach toward Jesus? Are you like the Pharisee? Or the sinful woman? What's your approach? I've got to clean up. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Or I come as a broken sinner trusting and resting in him. And and, and then the other question I think it forces us to ask is, is that do we reject others or do we receive others? What is our general posture as we think about what we see here demonstrated by grace? That leads us to a second observation. So, the uninvited guest or the unwelcome guest then leads us to verse 40, the unfolded story. Now, so so far, we haven't heard from Jesus. We've been told what Simon thinks, but Jesus now in verse 40 unfolds a story. He discerns Simon's very thoughts, and he directs a response to him. Look at the text. It says, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And so he directs this to – and so it is astonishing because Jesus – discerns his thinking and then speaks to his thoughts and he tells a story for the religious it says a certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay he canceled the debt of both there's the parable it's not like the other parables we've seen is it it's short it's simple and so the story is is simplistic in that there's a lender and two debtors now, we're not told why they owed debt, but they owed, one owed 500 denarii, and the other owed 50 denarii. That would be two years' worth of salary versus two months of salary. That's what that would have been equivalent to. Two years of salary, that's how much debt the one owed, and then two months of salary, 50 denarii, that's what the other owed. In either case, they could not pay their debt. Are you picking up on this? Neither one could pay their debt. The debts were that significant. They had no ability and they had no assets to pay what they owed. So the lender cancels the debt of both of these men. We're not told why the men were in debt. We're not told why the lender forgave them. It's irrelevant. The money lender can do whatever he wants to. And so he showed grace. There's no reason. There's just grace. And so we should see where Jesus is going with this. Both of these men in the parable have been forgiven, both deserve nothing, and both had every reason to be grateful. Do you see that? Both of them had every reason to be grateful. And so then Jesus answers a, asks a question, now which of them will love him more? Well, Jesus knew the answer. He was pressing Simon to think about himself this is one occasion where clearly the parable is certainly pointing at us. It's a self-examining question. Because you can't separate the two debtors. There's a Pharisee and there's a woman. Is one without a debt or are they both debt? Shouldn't Simon be asking, what's my debt? Shouldn't Simon be wondering, why he hasn't responded to Jesus the way this woman has responded to Jesus? Well, at least Jesus is going there, isn't he? The parable really indicts Simon. And so then he, the indictment comes because he's got nowhere to move. He's got nowhere to go. And so Jesus asks the question, and you have an answer of truth. Simon answered Jesus, verse 43. The one, I suppose, he's a little reluctant. He's a little hesitant, I guess the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Simon answers correctly. Jesus states to him, you have judged rightly. Simon's problem is that he does not see himself as a debtor, just the woman. I mean, it never crossed Simon's mind that maybe it's a grace that Jesus is even there eating with him. Let alone that Jesus would allow this woman to approach him. It never crosses his mind. And so For us today, the story reminds us that we all owe a debt. It doesn't matter if you're a $500 sinner or you're a $50 sinner. You're a sinner. (laughs) And you might be a good sinner and you might be a really bad sinner. But all sinners deserve hell. And anyone who has experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ ought to be overwhelmed by Jesus. Are you overwhelmed by Jesus? Are you overwhelmed that you, if you're a Christian this morning, that you are forgiven of your sin, that your debt has been canceled? See, that's where this is going. And so it leads us, and I'll get there. i got more to say about that. But it leads us to the kingdom question. Are you able to see yourself in the story? I would not say that we should always read ourselves into the stories of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, you're not David, and your problems aren't Goliath, so that's a bunch of nonsense. But in this case, the parable is told because there's these, there's these figures that represent. Are you able to see yourself in the story? Are you able to see yourself? Are you aware of your sinfulness? Are you aware of your debt? Are you aware of your sin? And are you aware of your need for Jesus, Simon? I actually think that Jesus has a compassion here for Simon. Because, you know, every Pharisee where we're given their name, they are transformed. I mean, the Pharisees that he interacted with, like on this personal level. Nicodemus, Arimathea, Joseph, Arimathea. And so that leads us to the final observation, the unfathomable grace. Now, what Jesus does here. <laughs> After he gets Simon to say this is he unloads unfathomable grace. I, I just think this is so, so powerful. And he, here's the unfathomable grace. Here's what he does. First, he reveals the folly of self-righteousness. Look at verse 44. then turning toward the woman, he said to the, Simon, "Do you see this woman?" I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Do you see what he's doing? In other words, you should have been doing the very thing she's been doing. You're no righteous man. You're a ruined sinner. And so Jesus makes a pointed and powerful application. Do you see this woman? Well, of course he sees this woman. He stood here. He sat here and watched all of this. But Jesus is showing Simon, or at least showing the reader, what Simon does not see. You see, it's it's just amazing that not once does he speak a word of condemnation to that woman. You see that? Instead, his condemnation is against Simon. Simon. This woman has had an experience in her heart, Simon. This woman has had an encounter with the living God. This woman has been justified. This woman has been forgiven. This woman has been transformed. But Simon, clearly you haven't because you've done nothing to demonstrate that you have repented, of that you have seen your sin and need for me. You see, self-righteousness does this. It Self-righteousness, it it makes us unable to see ourselves rightly, to see others rightly, and to see Jesus rightly. Do you see that? Self-righteousness, the self-righteous Pharisee cannot see his own sinfulness, but he can certainly see everyone else's sinfulness. But the most tragic thing is he doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, forgive me. The sin is not the problem. It's the the lack of seeing one's need for forgiveness that is the problem. And so their actions prove it all. And so if we're looking at customary things, this woman has been the true host. Simon is not. A true host would have done what? A true host would have done all of these things, would have honored with a kiss the well-honored guest. It would have made ensured that his feet were washed. Would have presented gifts of appreciation. This, Simon sees nothing of this in Jesus. But it leads to a second thing. The unfathomable grace first shows the folly of self-righteousness, but it also renders the forgiveness of sin. Now now look at verse 47. You've got to see this. Therefore I tell you. Who's he telling this to? Simon. Now imagine you're the woman, right? He's talking about you to Simon. <laughs> he says to Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And so, and, and so notice here then verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say, well, who's this who even forgives sins? Jesus twice announces her forgiveness. Isn't that profound? First she tells him she's forgiven, which ought to make Simon think, well, what about me? She's forgiven, Simon. Imagine you're the woman and you hear Jesus tell the most religious of all that you have been forgiven of your sin. And I want you to see here, this is a snapshot of the, snapshot of the gospel. Her sins are many, his mercy was more, and then her love was much you see it? And and notice what he says. I tell you her sins, which are many. In case you're thinking that Jesus somehow just overlooks sin, as if Jesus just dismisses sin. He tells Simon, I know she's a sinner. And that makes what's happened even all the more glorious. I know she's a sinner. I know every sin she's committed. I know that she's a great sinner. Her sins are not unknown and nor are they overlooked by our Lord. And in saying that, he's not making prostitution respectable. He is making salvation possible. He is making salvation possible. And in fact, we would say he makes it a reality because he forgives her. Her sins are many. What of it? She is forgiven. His mercy is more. Though her sins were many, his mercy extends forgiveness. He tells Simon that her sins are forgiven, and he says to Simon, but he who is forgiven little loves little. She loves much because she's been forgiven of much. It's not that Simon's been forgiven of little. His point is is that if you've not experienced true forgiveness, you don't get what's happening here. Imagine the love. Now, now, get this. Stay with me. Look what happens. And then he said to her, (laughs) after he speaks to Simon, he looks to her and he says it twice. How many times was she, were, are we told she's a sinner? Twice, Jesus says, She is forgiven. And the second time, he looks at her and he says, You are forgiven. Imagine the love she felt the moment he looked at her. Imagine the relief she experienced to hear those words, Forgiven. Didn't I not say in the beginning? It's truth, it's not just emotion. No, he is saying, you are forgiven, you are justified. And in the moment she hears Jesus pronounce that forgiveness, all of her doubts and fears and questions were answered in that moment. In that moment, she would never be the same. And what resulted then? Her love was much. In other words, she doesn't love for forgiveness, she loves because of forgiveness. In other words, she wasn't loving Jesus to earn forgiveness. Her love for Jesus was an overflow of the forgiveness that she had experienced. You can't, and, and, and so her love and devotion was the result of grace in her life, not the cause of grace. Isn't it interesting that we're told over and over again that she's a sinner? And Jesus here gives her a new identity. Yes, you're a sinner, but you're a forgiven sinner. Wow. And so it shows us that Jesus Christ has more grace and forgiveness than we have sin in us. You cannot outsin God's grace and forgiveness. And anyone who experiences just an ounce of his forgiveness will never be the same. That's what we see here. And so notice how the crowd is astonished. The crowd says, well, now hold on a minute. Who's this? Who is this that can forgive sins? Now, do you remember when Simon doubted Jesus? He said, he's not a prophet. You allow this woman to do all this. Well, it's kind of interesting because Jesus here proves he's more than a prophet. Because prophets don't forgive sins. Who can only forgive sins? God only God. He is more than a prophet. He is the redeemer God who came to save sinners. He is the king who came to rescue his people. Micah 7 verse 18 says, who is a God like you? Only God, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, but because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He, you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Only God can forgive sin and cast them into the depths of the sea. And Corey ten Boom once said, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea And then puts up a sign that reads, no fishing. What a great statement. That's how forgiven we are. That's how forgiven she was. And so you might say, well, how can he forgive? How can he forgive her? They were certainly asking, how could he forgive? And here's the answer, because he's the one that would eventually go to the cross of Calvary. And on the cross, he would die for sinners. On the cross, he would not dismiss our sin. He would pay for our sin. Our sins don't get overlooked. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you get a mulligan or you get a pass. What what forgiveness means is Christ took your penalty and your punishment on the cross and died in your place so that you could be forgiven of every sin, so that you could be made righteous before Him, and so you could dine at the table as one of His children. That's the power of forgiveness. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands and having nailed them to the cross. How do we know our sins are forgiven? Well, Jesus says it, but we know our sins are forgiven because of the cross. And so the last thing that he does is he reveals the folly of self-righteousness, renders the forgiveness of sin, but then he recognizes the faith that saves. And so he looks to her and he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that go in peace is the classic Jewish expression of going in the peace of Yahweh. But it actually means go into life and eternity with peace. <laughs> wow. He says to the woman, your faith. And by saying faith, what he means is, is not that she had some kind of internal power to save herself, but it's her faith that looked to Jesus rather than to herself for salvation. Because saving faith is a faith that looks to Jesus alone. Joel Beakey writes, faith is the empty hand that receives Christ and all his benefits. Faith is I have nothing in my hands to bring but simply to thy cross I cling, and every benefit of salvation comes to me through the finished work of Jesus Christ. My faith is not my salvation, Christ is. But faith is the means by which which all the benefits of our salvation are brought to us. And it is a faith that doesn't stand alone. How do we know she had faith in Jesus? She loved Jesus. She brought her alabaster flask and she poured it on her feet. She honored him in worship. She praised him forever because she had been forgiven. If you have been forgiven of your sins, you can never be the same. And so it leads to this kingdom question. How many are your sins? How many? If you go through the list of all of your sins, how big would that list be? You may be here and you'd be you have no idea what I've done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You may say, but it's just not possible. Oh, but it is. Because Jesus Christ loves sinners and went to the cross to purchase our salvation. The question really is, have you received by faith the forgiveness of sin? You say, well, what I got to do? You don't got to do anything. Just look to Jesus and believe that he is who he says he is. Is that what she did? She just looked at Jesus as the one who could forgive. Trust in what he's done. You know what she didn't know at this point. He died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And so receive that forgiveness. But in conclusion, let me just say this. Isn't it interesting that the people said, who is this who forgives sin? And actually, this whole parable and this whole account comes out of the accusation that Jesus is what? He's not just a prophet. He's not just God. He is the friend of sinners. Imagine that. He is a friend of sinners. Today, Jesus Christ has not only forgiven sinners, but he has made us his friend through his finished work and given us a place at his table. So this morning, does, what does that make you wanna do? It ought to make you wanna worship. It ought to make you wanna lift your voice. But if you're here today and you've never been saved, will you just admit that you're a great sinner? And will you, like this woman, come to Jesus and be forgiven of all your sin? And will you live in loving gratitude and grateful service to the one who has saved you? This friend of sinners who gave his life for you, this friend of sinners, who saves to the uttermost. Let's stand. And if today you need to respond to that invitation, then you come. I'll be here in the front. I'm happy to talk to you. Or maybe you just need to come and you need to kneel down and say, thank you, Lord, for my sins were many, but you have saved me and forgiven me. And for all of us as believers, let us lift our voice to the King who has saved us and forgiven us of every trespass. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your people here today to have listened And I pray, God, now that you, through the Holy Spirit, will appropriate the truth to our heart and enable us to respond in love for Christ and in complete surrender to his service. May we love him much because of all that he has forgiven us. And say, may you do that work in Jesus' name. Amen.